Hello, everyone. This is Jeremy from Reasonable Doubts. Dave, Luke, and I will be back next week for a brand new episode, but until then, I hope you will enjoy this lecture that I gave to CFI Michigan earlier this summer. The lecture is titled, Which Jesus? Exploring Differences Within the Gospel Narratives. It's an introduction to redaction criticism as it's used by scholars studying the New Testament. Much of this information was covered in episodes 26 and 27, cross-examining the four witnesses, but it's all here in a more detailed and concise format, with some extra material on the theory behind redaction criticism, as well as extra examples of the discrepancies between different gospel accounts. Also, if you go to www.doubtcast.org, you can download a PDF of the PowerPoint slides that I used in the presentation. There are many charts, scripture passages, references, and other things that I hope you will find helpful. Also, I'd like to announce that we now have a donate button on the Reasonable Doubts website. So if you've been listening for a while and you really enjoy and value this podcast, uh, there's a way that you can give in return. Reasonable Doubts will always be a free podcast. This is a labor of love for Luke, Dave, and myself. We all believe in the importance of skepticism and naturalism, and so we wouldn't want to do anything that would limit that message getting out to anyone. We've never asked for money before on the show, and we've never received any money for doing the show. We have, on the other hand, spent a lot of money making this podcast. Times are tough for just about everyone right now, believe me, I know. But anything that you can offer to help us would be greatly appreciated. If Luke and Dave were with me right now, I'm sure we could whip up some Robert Tilton tears as an emotional appeal, but uh, I think I'll just leave it at that. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week. Good evening, everyone. Are the gospel accounts reliable? Most Christian apologists would say, yes, absolutely they are. Why? Because we have four independent eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life and ministry, that being the gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They were written by his closest disciples. They agree on every important detail, and even though there are some minor differences, um, we would expect that with any eyewitness account. You have four witnesses uh, look at a traffic accident. They're going to say slightly different things about it. So we should expect those differences. The thing is, on all of these points, they are actually wrong. First of all, who actually wrote the Gospels? Were they eyewitnesses? Were they the disciples of Jesus? No, the, uh, the authorship that has come down traditionally to us of Matthew, Mark, and John, uh, that is just from church tradition. Uh, there's no actual evidence that those particular people wrote those Gospels. It's, in fact, quite unlikely that the writers were eyewitnesses to these events. Uh, for example, several narratives mention events that nobody could have actually been an eyewitness to, so private events of Jesus off praying alone or being tempted in the wilderness or being alone with just Pilate. Luke, the Gospel of Luke, is the only gospel which actually explains his research methods, and he does not claim to have been an eyewitness, though he has claimed to have interviewed some. And the gospels extensively quote other written sources word for word, and this would be an awfully strange thing to do if the people were eyewitnesses. Are they independently written? No, this is not the case either. 
93% of the book of Mark is repeated verbatim, so word for word, in the uh, Gospels of Matthew and Luke. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke taken together are called the synoptic Gospels for that reason. Synoptic meaning literally they are seen together. They tell the same stories, often using the exact same words. Now, how do we account for this? The easiest way to account for this, uh, for the similarities, is that the gospel writers were actually copying from a common source that they all shared together. But it gets a little more tricky than that because there are also discrepancies despite all the similarities. The gospels differ in details of events, in the order in which those events happen, the specifics of what were said by all the characters involved, and they give different emphasis and different interpretations of events. So how do we explain this? Well, this problem, uh, figuring out why all the similarities and yet the differences, has been called the synoptic problem. Uh, currently, in biblical scholarship, secular biblical scholarship, I guess you could say, the uh, consensus right now is that the gospel writers used multiple sources that they then edited together to complete the final gospels. Uh, the most popular theory of how this was actually done has been called, uh, alternatively, the two-source theory or the four-source hypothesis. So real quick, I want to give you a little background on some theory, and then we'll jump into the gospel narratives themselves and examine some of these differences more closely. All right, four-source theory, in a nutshell, is that there were, there's one primary source, that being the book of Mark, that was used by both the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke to complete their own accounts. There is also another source that is missing uh, from history. We do not have it anymore. This source has been called Q, uh, Q being the first letter of the German word for source. Um, they believe this was a collection of sayings and teachings of Jesus um, and may have informed even some of the Gnostic Gospels as well. Uh, we'll get into more evidence for Q in just a little bit. But the idea is that Matthew and Luke took from Q, they took from Mark, and then they added their own material, whether or not they just created it or they had it from another source or, 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 or an oral tradition is hard to say. Now, Christian tradition holds that Matthew was actually the first gospel to be written, and then Mark would be a sort of condensed, maybe a Reader's Digest version of Matthew. But the four-source theory depends on an entire different assumption altogether. It depends on the idea of Markan priority. What this means is that Mark must have been the first of the Gospels to have been written. Well, is there any evidence for this? Can we, can we reliably say that Mark was indeed first? You could, and you wouldn't even have to go out of the biblical text itself to, uh, to make the case. There are patterns uh, of agreement and disagreement within the text, and we can make inferences from those patterns as to which, which text actually occurred first. So, in scenario number one, if all of the Gospels are telling an, an identical story, then whoever the later Gospel writers are, they borrowed from the first and didn't change anything. If all of them differ, then of course they weren't borrowing from anything. Now, both those scenarios happen frequently within the biblical texts. In the, in the third scenario here, uh, if Matthew and Mark are identical, but Luke is the one that differs, we could say that one borrowed from another, but Luke ended up changing it. So what, you, what I want you to see here is then that makes, uh, that makes it difficult to say that Luke was the one that was written first because he's clearly adapting something else. Now, this occurs all the time. 
What happens if Luke and Mark are identical, but Matthew differs? Well, then one borrowed, uh, but Matthew ended up changing it. And you see the logic here. Well, then, of course, it seems very hard to say that Matthew was the one that was written first because it appears to be changing something else. Now, what would happen if we found a situation in which Luke and Matt had identical accounts, but Mark was different? Well, then it would be one borrowed from another, but Mark changed the story. This is almost never found in the Bible. There's maybe two or three examples uh, that can be defended that this indeed did happen, but it's exceedingly rare. Um, What if Luke and Matthew were identical, but the story isn't even in Mark? Well, then both of them were working from a source, Q, that Mark did not have access to. This does happen, though it is is much more, uh, it is much less frequent. Now, If Matthew or Luke was the primary source, we would never see this scenario number five. We we wouldn't expect to see that all that often because what that would imply is that Matthew and Luke had to alter their sources in identical ways, but it was just by accident. Uh, But what if Matthew or Luke was the primary source? Well, then we should see this happening just as often. This together makes a very strong case for the fact that Mark was the first of the Gospels to be written. And I'll explain more as to why that's important in just a moment. But real quick, some more evidence for the fact that Mark was written first. Well, Mark's Greek is very sloppy. Uh, They are often corrected. Uh, Grammatical errors are corrected by Matthew and Luke. Now, if Mark wasn't first, that would mean he would have to intentionally dumb down a text. For what reason, we can't possibly imagine. Mark is the shortest... Um, Now, if Mark came later, he would have to have deliberately deleted large portions, sometimes very important information, and why would he do that? Also, Matthew and Luke always agree on the order of events when you can find those events in Mark. However, when the events are not in Mark, they always disagree on the order in which they took place of. Without Mark as their guide, they have no sense of chronology. So all of this constitutes a very strong case, I think, for the fact that Mark was written first. Mark can make sense of the agreements and disagreements. Other theories require us to believe in very implausible and even absurd assumptions at times. Real quick, some evidence for Q. Matthew and Luke frequently have identical wording when they are sharing stories that is not in Mark. So this gives us a good indication that they shared some sort of document, most likely a written document. But they always disagree on the order of sayings that are not in Mark, which would suggest that whatever source they're using is just a source of sayings. It doesn't have its own chronology. So we wouldn't expect it to be a narrative, maybe just a collection of proverbs or or wise sayings of Jesus. Um, The Gospel of Thomas is another good uh, piece of evidence for this because the Gospel of Thomas does have large portions of it which are just wisdom sayings of Jesus. And they happen to be the same ones uh, that we'll see popping up in Matthew and Luke, uh, which gives us an indication that Thomas, the Gospel of Thomas, uh, actually had access to Q as well. All right. Well, why am I bringing all this up? Why is this important? It's a core foundation for the study of redaction criticism. Redaction criticism is how, uh, it's the study of how authors have created a work by modifying or editing their sources together. Kind of the logic of redaction criticism is that if one author is going to change the work of another, they must have a reason for doing it. If they were entirely satisfied with what the previous author said, they would just keep the language. They wouldn't have any need to change it. 
So if we identify those differences then, then we can have a sense of what the distinctive themes or, or ideas about Jesus that each author had. And now Mark then becomes sort of a Rosetta Stone for understanding the other Gospels. Since Mark is first, and Mark is a primary source, we can see, whenever there's a difference, we can see exactly what they changed, and we can then speculate as to why they changed it. Uh, also, the, one of the strengths of Mark and Priority is I've given a basic timeline here of when we think these Gospels were written, the Gospel of Mark being written in 60, uh, sometime in 65 to 70 AD, and then the Gospels of Matthew being written uh, anyway, anywhere from a d decade uh, to 15 years later, Matthew and Luke are written. And then John would be the latest of the Gospels. Uh, this would be somewhere between 90 and 100 AD is what scholars uh, think are the timelines here. Well, what this means is if Mark is first, we can trace the evolution of these stories. Since we have an idea of the timeline as to where we're, when they were written, we can watch uh, ideas of Jesus actually evolve over time. And that's what I'm going to hope to show. So let's start off with one of our first comparisons. Uh, these verses come from the baptism of Jesus. Uh, in the beginning of the Gospels, John the Baptist baptizes Jesus in the River Jordan, and something happens. When Jesus is coming out of the water, God speaks from the sky, and a dove descends like a spirit, uh, or rather a spirit descending like a dove, um, on Jesus, um, probably representing the Holy Spirit. Now, in Mark's account, I want to read Mark's account for you. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and a spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my son, the beloved. With you I am well pleased. Now, Matthew retains uh, almost the identical account. There's just a few changes in language, but look at this. look at the end here. And the ending in Matthew, instead of saying, you are my son, Matthew says, this is my son. Uh, instead of saying, um, with you I am well pleased, he says, with whom I am well pleased. This appears to be the difference between a private statement that only Jesus is hearing, God is talking to Jesus, and a public statement that is made to, to a crowd of people standing by. God is declaring for all the witnesses there that Jesus is indeed his son. If this is all we had to go on, this is, this is not going to tell us much. This is just a small difference in language. Maybe, maybe it was just the, the author remembered something slightly different, right? But what redaction critics will do is they will, see, they will look at other differences between Mark and Matthew and see if they can find a consistent pattern. If there's a theme to these differences, then we think we've identified, uh, we've identified a trend and we, we've identified a major distinctive difference that one of the authors has. They want to represent things slightly differently. And I also want to make a quick comment about what son of God means. It's always a temptation to take our knowledge uh, that we've received from our culture of Christian theology and read it backwards into the texts and think son of God means Jesus is identi identical to God. We wouldn't be warranted in that assumption here. Uh, the reason is when the, that term son of God is actually used in the Hebrew Bible, it's often used of kings. It's used of people like King David, a son of God by adoption. Um, it can sometimes be used collectively referring to the nation of Israel as the sons of God. Uh, or sometimes it is a term that's reserved for angelic beings, uh, servants and angels. 
such as in uh, Job has several references to sons of God uh, in that in that line. So let's try to forget a little bit of what we've learned and look at this through fresh eyes. Is there a pattern here? Is there anything to this difference we see between Mark and Matthew? Well, we have to investigate more of the uh, of the Gospels. Well, I should go back just a second. Okay, Mark's account is the private one. You are my son, the beloved. With you I am well pleased. In Mark's account, Jesus is a misunderstood Messiah. Despite the fact that he is a miracle worker and he teaches as one with authority, people simply don't seem to recognize what Jesus represents, who he is, what his mission is here for. God recognizes it, and the demons seem to know that he's the Messiah, that he's the Son of God, but even his closest followers don't seem to figure this out. His family thinks he's crazy. Uh, You can see that in Mark 3, verse 21. Uh, They're concerned for him. They think he may have gone nuts. Uh, The Jewish leaders think that his miracles come from satanic powers, and his own disciples frequently don't seem to understand. After his his miracles, like walking on the water or calming the storm or feeding the, the, the thousands, they continually don't seem to understand who he is. They seem astounded, and Jesus has to say over and over again, do you still not understand? Jesus at one point asks the disciples uh, who, what do the people, or rather who, who the people think that Jesus is. And they reply, well, some think he's John the Baptist. Some think he's the prophet of Elijah that's been raised from the dead. But after Jesus asks Peter directly, who do you think I am? Peter does seem to know. He says, you are the Christ. But then we see immediately afterwards Jesus sternly orders them not to tell anyone about him. That's Mark 8, verse 30. He tells them, don't tell anyone else that I'm the Messiah. You guys know this, but don't tell anyone. And we even see with Peter doesn't truly understand in the end. He doesn't understand that Jesus is supposed to die or suffer or anything like that. He doesn't seem to get it. Ordering the disciples not to, not to reveal Jesus' identity. This happens time and time again. After miracles like um, healing people, casting out demons, there are a few bystanders who seem to put together, hey, this man, this man is the Messiah. He's the Son of God. And quickly Jesus and uh, his other followers silence them and, and tell them, don't tell anyone else about this. So why doesn't Jesus want his messianic nature to be known? Why the messianic secret? Some take this as evidence that Jesus actually never claimed to be the son of God. So his earliest followers would have had to try to explain the uncomfortable fact that he was silent about this. I don't know how much credibility I give to that because there are plenty of other messiahs at the time. And so it's not improbable at all that Jesus did claim to be the son of God. The text hints that Jesus might be afraid that people will misunderstand his role. They are looking for a military leader to be their Messiah. They're looking for a king. And that's not what Jesus is about in Mark. In Mark, Jesus is a suffering servant. He tells his disciples that he must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and then be killed and three days later rise again. So Mark portrays the Messiah not as some sort of divine king or divine ruler, but as a servant who has to suffer for the sake of others before he will ever achieve his glory. So that's two things I want us to understand. He is is a misunderstood Messiah. Nobody seems to get him. uh, And he is a suffering servant. 
Now, there is one public declaration that Jesus does make as to who he is. This is when he's on trial uh, in front of the, the, uh, the Pharisees and the high priest. They ask him directly, are you the Christ? And Jesus confesses then, yes, it is as you say. And then he starts speaking uh, of apocalyptic visions that he will return from heaven to judge the people. So his statement's taken as blasphemy, and this is the reason why he is, uh, he is tried and then killed. But do his followers ever really come to understand who he is? It's really hard to say whether or not they do. Uh, this is a passage, this is the original ending of Mark uh, from the earliest manuscripts. This is right after the resurrection. Uh, the women are visiting the tomb, Mary and the women are visiting the tomb, and they encounter that it's empty, and they encounter an angel there, and the angel says, Do not be alarmed, you are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has been raised, he is not here. Go tell his disciples and Peter that he's going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Well, what happens next? It says, So they went out and fled from the tomb, for terror and amazement had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. That's the ending of Mark. The original ending of Mark drops off right there. The women are told this glorious news of his resurrection, and they're too scared to tell anyone else. So we never actually hear in Mark if those foolish disciples ever really wised up. We don't even know if they even heard of the resurrection. So that's Mark's original ending. All right, so we're seeing a trend here. Um, In his baptism, it is, with you I am well pleased. You are my son. And we see the, uh, that he is a misunderstood Messiah, and he's keeping himself, his nature, secret. What about Matthew? How is Jesus depicted in Matthew? In Matthew, it's different. Jesus openly proclaims his identity. He's recognized as the Messiah early on. His family doesn't think his cr- he's crazy. His family knows that he is special. They've been told by an angelic messenger before he was even born. Even astrologers from the East can see in the sky signs that Jesus is is the king. And the disciples themselves, after seeing Jesus' miracles, uh, seem to be fully aware of of how he is able to do those miracles. Here's a comparison again, Mark versus Matthew. This is after Jesus calms the storm. In Mark 6.51, it says, Then he got into the boat, and with them the wind ceased. And they were utterly astonished, for they did not understand, it goes on to say, but because God had hardened their hearts. Same exact story in Matthew 14. When they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. In this account, in Matthew, they understand. It's not hard to get at all. Well, what else is different in Matthew? Jesus is rejected by the people, again. But in the account of Jesus' trial, Matthew adds some things that aren't found in any gospel, certainly not found in Mark. Matthew adds uh, a story about Pilate, the Roman governor, Pilate's wife, being warned in a dream that Jesus is indeed innocent. And Pilate then tries to offer a pardon for Jesus because he doesn't want to have to go through executing him. So he offers to free uh, one one of the people who is supposed to be crucified, and they choose Barnabas over Jesus. What does the crowd say? After Pilate says, I wash my hands, I am innocent of this man's blood, see to it yourselves, the crowd then replies, 
His blood be upon us and our children, which this verse has been used uh, in anti-Semitic attacks against Jews by Christians for centuries. The nation seems to be condemning themselves. What's the theme here? Matthew, in Matthew, the nation is accountable. Matthew was not comfortable with Mark's language because it was too easy to see how why people wouldn't have believed in Jesus, why they wouldn't have followed him. Hell, his, his own disciples didn't even understand who he really was. But in Matthew, all the people are completely accountable. They've been given the signs. They've been given the wonders. They've heard the testimony of God himself at Jesus' baptism. Nobody has the right to reject his lordship over them. So this heightens the sense of judgment when the people end up rejecting Jesus. There's some other features of Matthew's gospel. Again and again, um, Jesus' conflicts with the Pharisees are emphasized. Um, They're built upon more than you will find in Mark. There's also very careful attention to showing that Jesus didn't break any of the Old Testament laws, that he was a fulfillment of the Old Testament law. If you put all this together, this allows us to speculate somewhat about uh, what the community was like that Matthew was writing to. We can guess they were probably a Jewish community. There's a strong Jewish focus. Um, but they were, of course, experiencing conflicts with, uh, with their neighbors, uh, probably those in the, in the school of the Pharisees. Um, this would be why there would be so much more of an emphasis on Jesus not breaking the law, an emphasis on the uh, mistakes of the Pharisees. So what we've seen here is a trend. Again, just like Matthew's baptism account, where it is a public pronouncement, Jesus is very public about his ministry, about his identity and who he is. Now let's move on to some comparisons between Matthew and Luke. And I'll do this by focusing on the Christmas narratives. Uh, Matthew and Luke are the only Gospels that do mention the Christmas narrative. And they both agree that Jesus was born in Bethlehem and that Jesus grows up in Nazareth. And they both agree that this fulfilled prophecy, Old Testament prophecy. But they disagree in every other detail. In the Matthew account, Joseph and Mary are already living in Bethlehem. Uh, that There's no census. There's nothing that has to bring them to an inn. Uh, they don't have to go sleep in the stables. They're at their own house. And they're visited by the Magi or the wise men at their home uh, shortly after Jesus' birth. But they have to leave. They have to leave Bethlehem for Egypt because King Herod is going to try to slaughter all the young children of Bethlehem to, so nobody will usurp his, uh, his kingdom. After they come back from Egypt, they end up settling in Nazareth. They had not lived there before, but they go and make their home or settle in Nazareth. Why? Because it's too dangerous to go back to Judea. If they go back to Bethlehem, they're going to have to deal with Herod's son, who is now the king, and they're they're concerned for Jesus. The angel tells them, don't go back. And that's how they end up getting in Nazareth. Well, Luke, again, they don't share this story from Mark. So their accounts are going to differ. Luke's account is totally different. Joseph and Mary live in Nazareth to begin with, and they they concoct a reason why they have to end up going to Bethlehem. The significance of Bethlehem is this is the city of David, and the Messiah has to be a king in the line of David. So they concoct this reason why Jesus must go to Bethlehem, the census. Uh, They're visited by shepherds, but there's no wise men. Uh, And they end up leaving Bethlehem for Jerusalem Jerusalem, directly. It says 40 days after Jesus' birth. 
they end up uh, going to Jerusalem and making sacrifices at the temple. Then they return back to their own hometown of Nazareth after they've fulfilled their obligations. There's no flight into Egypt or anything like that. It's completely different. Now, again, we can say why these accounts are different because both of them didn't have uh, Mark's guidance uh, in, in regards to Jesus' birth and what happened. But is there any kind of significance to these differences? What do they actually mean? Yes, again, they point to the distinctive focuses of these different gospel writers. Matthew is portraying Jesus as symbolically reliving episodes of Jewish history. Jewish readers would have identified this immediately, what was going on here. Jesus is exiled in a foreign land. He needs to flee to Egypt, um, just like the Jews had been exiled in Babylon. Jesus needs to come out of Egypt and return like Israel did during when the Jews were liberated from slavery and what they returned to the promised land. This even goes outside of the birth narratives. Um, shortly afterwards, Jesus' first, uh, his first act after the story of his birth is to pass through water like Moses, passing through water during his baptism. Then Jesus is preparing for his ministry by resisting temptation in the wilderness for 40 days, just as the Israelites needed to be purified by 40 years of wandering in the desert. Matthew's focus is a Jewish one, and they are showing Jesus repeating these events. Now, Luke doesn't have that concern. Luke is writing to a Gentile audience. He tells us in the introduction of the book that he is a Gentile. He's writing to Romans. So none of this Jewish history is all that important. Instead, he focuses on Jesus going up to Jerusalem. As we'll see in a minute, Jerusalem is central to uh, Luke's narrative. There's something very special about Jerusalem to Luke. Also in Matthew and Luke, we have genealogies of Jesus. Uh, these genealogies trace back Jesus' ancestry to King David. Again, it's important that he is a king in the line of David if he is going to be the Messiah. But what's interesting here is Matthew, um, well, we'll get to it in a minute. You can see just from the lists of names that Luke's genealogy is much, much longer than Matthew's. It doesn't even come close. But real quick, focusing on Matthew's genealogy, he breaks it. He subdivides it down into sets of 14, three sets of 14. He traces Jesus' heritage back to Abraham, the very first Jew. And he breaks it apart into 14 generations. There are 14 generations uh, between very significant events in Israel's history. Uh, first Abraham, the first uh, patriarch. Uh, 14 generations between Abraham and David, Israel's greatest king. There are 14 generations between David and the exile. And there are 14 generations uh, between the exile and then Jesus. Why 14? The gospel doesn't say, but seven was considered to be a, a perfect number, the number of completion. God rested on the seventh day. So 14 is twice seven. So you want perfect, 14 is twice perfect. And so they're trying to show, look, there's a historical pattern here. God works in significant events every 14 generations. Now, three times 14 is 42. And so if you're familiar with Douglas Adams, that is the answer. <laughs> I'm glad people caught the reference. That is the answer to life, the universe, and everything. You won't find any sort of argument for God in that, though, because if you actually count these up, there's only 40. 
not 42. This is just an interesting side note, I think. Uh, why are there 40 instead of 42? Well, um, from Abraham to David, there, there are clearly, four, you can count it up, there's 14. But he has to count David twice uh, to get that second 14. And then he needs to uh, uh, count Jeconias twice to get the last set of 14. So he's creatively counting here to actually make everything fit his scheme. So clearly this has been doctored for a, theolo- for a theological purpose. Now Luke has many, he traces it back to Abraham as well with many more generations. But then there's even more generations because Luke traces Jesus' ancestry all the way back to the first human being, all the way back to Adam. This makes sense again if Luke is writing to a Gentile audience. In Luke's mind, um, Jesus is going to be rejected and this rejection will allow uh, the rest of the world, Gentiles, non-Jews, to be saved. So it's important to establish not only that Jesus is the Messiah, but Jesus is, is connected to the very first human being. He is, he is the Lord of all. So I want to focus now on a distinctive theme of Luke. Luke's Jesus is, a, is often portrayed as a prophet. And this is where Jerusalem comes into the scene. This is why Jerusalem is significant. Jesus believes that prophets die in Jerusalem. So he knows ahead of time what his mission is going to be, that he's going to have to die just like any prophet who's rejected by his people. But he knows his rejection will allow the rest of the world to hear this message. Uh, so a passage from his very first sermon in, uh, in Galilee, in his, in his hometown, of, hometown of Nazareth, he says, it's impossible for a prophet to be killed away from Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I have desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, uh, but you are not willing. Again, uh, Luke is going to emphasize the unwillingness of the Jewish people to accept their Messiah. But there's some interesting differences too regarding the whole notion of salvation in the kingdom. All throughout Matthew and Mark, we get the gospel again and again, Jesus saying, um, "Repent." this is the good news, repent and be baptized for the remission of sins because the kingdom is at hand. And he spends most of his time not emphasizing himself or who he is. He spends most of his time emphasizing the kingdom and talking about the kingdom. Now, here's some passages from Matthew that you are, I'm sure you're familiar with. Matthew talks about uh, there are some, stand, Jesus says, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom, meaning that there are going to be people still alive when Jesus returns. Um, Luke includes this passage, the, the same, same wording in this passage, but later on in his gospel, he clarifies what this means. He adds a story not found in Mark, and that is, as they were, here's a passage from uh, Luke 19. As they were listening to this, he went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Well, in this context, in Luke, that's mistaken. It's not going to appear immediately. And he has to explain why. And he goes into a parable to do that. So in Luke, basically what's going on is that there is an end of an age, but it's not imminent. It's not immediate and around the corner like it is in Matthew and Mark uh, because there needs to be time for the Gentiles to end up converting. This is not so much of a concern in either Mark or Matthew. 
Here's another passage. Uh, the Again, Jesus' gospel, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come uh, and it has come near. In Matthew and Mark, you find this over and over again. And you also find passages like this, only the one who endures to the end will be saved. Therefore, keep awake, uh, for you do not know when the master of the house will come. Uh, there's this notion that salvation in Matthew and Mark is entering into the kingdom. What is Jesus doing? He's preparing them to live a moral life in the kingdom. But they are going to have to survive. They're going to have to stay repentant uh, and survive through all the trials and tribulations if they are to enter into that kingdom. Uh, by, th- by the time we get to Luke, that apocalypticism is, is de-emphasized. All the passages in Mark that are very heavy into the apocalypse are toned down in Luke. It's more understood that the kingdom is near because Jesus is near. Jesus is somehow identified with the kingdom. It's not so much this idea of a literal kingdom anymore coming down and people will eventually enter into it. But John has virtually no mention of apocalypticism whatsoever. Remember, John is the latest gospel. In John's gospel, salvation isn't by surviving, repenting, and entering into the kingdom. It's by believing in in Jesus. That's all you need to do. He says, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. So the emphasis, you won't find any statement of just believe Jesus and that's enough. Um, Rather, in in Matthew and Mark, you're going to find that the the sheep, the, the sons of God, follow Jesus' commandments. They repent and they enter into the kingdom. Whereas the goats may profess his name, but they don't, they don't do anything to earn it. In John, uh, all you have to do is believe. That's sufficient for eternal life. So there's a shift now, not only in the apocalypticism, uh, but there's also a shift in the very uh, idea behind salvation. How does salvation actually occur? A couple things about John. John is not one of the synoptics. John is quite different, although it does talk about similar stories. It uses entirely different language, and so scholars speculate that John didn't have access to the synoptics. Uh, But this might, since they do have some stories in common, this might indicate that they were all aware of a oral tradition that they shared. Some things not found in John. You're not going to find the temptation in the wilderness. You're not going to find most of the parables. Jesus isn't so concerned about casting out demons. There's no transfiguration in John. Um, No Lord's, well, there is a Lord's Supper, but we'll get to that in a minute. It's not the same. He is not put on trial by the high priest. He's not found guilty of blasphemy. Those are things you won't find in John, but what you will find only in John are the following. Only in John do we hear Jesus referred to as the Word of God. Only there do we find Jesus referred to as the creator of the universe. It's only in John that Jesus is portrayed as being equal with God. You you only hear statements like to hear or see or reject the Father is to, uh, I'm sorry, to hear or see or reject Jesus is to reject the Father. Um, John is the latest of the Gospels, but it has what scholars would call a very high Christology, a very high notion uh, of who who Jesus is. In John, Jesus is clearly God himself, God incarnate. Uh, This is best seen by John's I am statements. I am is significant because when Moses asked God what his name was, uh, he replied, I am who I am. So that phrase would immediately be identified with with God. 
Now, Jesus uses the phrase, I am, two times in Mark, five times in Matthew, but 46 times in John. It happens over and over again. In Matthew and Mark, he's not very concerned about talking about himself at all. It's all focused on the kingdom. Uh, In John, it's the opposite. He barely talks about the kingdom at all, but he's always talking about who he is and what he represents. The most striking statement, what caused many a Jew to pick up stones to throw, was when Jesus made the statement, before Abraham was, I am. That's about as clear as you can get that he's saying he pre-existed the world uh, with God and must therefore be God or equal with God at least. It's also in John where we see Jesus referred to as the Lamb of God. There's some notion in Matthew and Mark of atonement. Uh, It's understood that Jesus' sacrifice is significant in some sort of way, but it's never exactly articulated how or why. Is it significant because uh, because it was an atoning sacrifice, or is it significant because his, his rejection then opens this salvation up to others? It's not exactly clear. Um, in John, it is clear. Uh, Jesus is the, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is referring to the Jewish celebration of Passover. Passover, of course, was when the angel of the Lord went to kill all the firstborn of Egypt, The Jews were spared by slaughtering a lamb and then uh, covering their their doorways with with its blood. And then the angel would pass over that house. Um, So this is significant. Speaking of Jesus uh, as the Lamb of God, we understand that his blood is a sacrifice. It's understood as a Jewish sacrifice. It is understood to be atoning for sins. Well, it's not surprising then John though he may not have had any knowledge of Mark, John doesn't agree with Mark as to what time the crucifixion uh, actually took place. In Mark, uh, the Passover takes place on Thursday. So the Last Supper is a Passover meal. It occurs the very same evening uh, or the evening after the Passover lambs are slaughtered. Then Jesus is crucified around 9 a.m. in the morning uh, after the Passover meal was eaten. In John, the Passover meal takes place on Friday. Uh, The Last Supper is not actually a a Passover meal. Uh, It occurs before the lambs are even slaughtered. Uh, There's also no symbolism in that Last Supper. So that's why you could argue, is is it really a Last Supper? No, Jesus is crucified on noon, the day before the Passover meal, at approximately the, the time that the, that the Passover lambs would be, would be slaughtered. In fact, the crucified men are having their legs broken to make sure that they die because the holiday is approaching. So there's been great effort in John to try to show us uh, that Jesus' death is connected uh, with, with Passover and with the sacrificial lamb. We don't find that emphasis in the other Gospels. But John is the latest. They are working, Christians are working out their theory on salvation and how all this works. So real quick, I want to summarize some of the points I brought up so far. What are the distinctive differences we see about Jesus in the individual Gospels? Well, we see that Mark, Jesus, is the suffering servant. He's a misunderstood Messiah. Even after his resurrection, we don't even know if anybody truly comprehended who he was. In Matthew, he is a public Messiah, and he is most clearly the Jewish Messiah. And Matthew is is focused around a Jewish identity of Jesus. In Luke, he is the Messiah, but he's a rejected Messiah. And Luke's emphasis is more on his prophetic nature. He is a prophet. 
And this makes sense for a Gentile. It was many of the prophets like Hosea uh, in, in the, the Hebrew prophets who first started kind of universalizing Judaism and saying, look, it's, it's just as immoral to do something wrong to an outsider, to a Gentile, uh, as it would be to, to some, do something wrong to a Jew. So this makes sense for uh, Luke to focus on the prophetic nature of Jesus. In Luke, he's also a savior to the world. By the time we get to John, Jesus is now a God incarnate. He is the literal flesh and blood revelation of God to man. And it's his blood that is the source of salvation. So I've tried to make a case that those are clear, irreconcilable differences in the uh, views of Jesus. Wouldn't it be better just to combine all of these accounts? Uh, Just take all the differences, try to meld them into one story, and then we'll get the fullest idea of Jesus. This is what a lot of biblical harmonizers uh, propose. Uh, Harmonization just means trying to take all the discrepancies in the Bible and find explanations that might be able to reconcile all of them. So a classic one is um, if... If in Mark there's only one um, there's only one guy that's possessed by demons that Jesus is healing, um, and in Matthew there's two guys who are possessed by demons and Jesus is healing him, they a harmonizer will say, well there were really two, it's just Mark for some reason only mentioned one of them, and that's kind of the typical strategy of how apologists try to harmonize. The problem with this, of course, is that harmonization assumes that the Gospels are consistent with one another. It's just the authors had a slightly different take. We need all of them to get the full picture. Um, But if the Gospels truly are not consistent with one another and they all have their own distinct themes and ideas of who Jesus is, then if we harmonize them, we miss the true message uh, of those individual Gospels. I'll give you a classic example Uh, Bart Ehrman likes to bring this one up, uh, and I think it's a great example, of uh, a type of harmonization of the Bible that just about anyone who's gone to a mainstream Protestant church would be familiar with. These are the seven last words of Jesus, the last statements Jesus made while on the cross before his death. You can see all the references. Uh, Some are from Luke, some are from John. Now, they're all different from one another, uh, but Liturgies, church liturgies around uh, Good Friday will try to smush them all together and create their own chronology of how these actually went. And this is how they, they have it working out. First, Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. Then he says, Truly I tell unto you, uh, you will be with me in paradise this day to the uh, thief that's uh, crucified to his right or left. I can't remember. Uh, then he says to his mother, Woman, here is your son. Then he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then he says, I am thirsty. Then he says, it is finished. And finally, he says, Father, into your hands, I commend my spirit. Well, there's no obvious contradictions in any of those, right? So why not just harmonize them? What's what's wrong with that? Especially if they aren't contradictory. The problem is each one of these, if you put them in their original context, makes perfect sense and says something distinctive about Jesus at the moment of his crucifixion. I think this is very easily demonstrated, uh, first of all, through all the things I've already shared about the themes of these individual Gospels, but especially if we compare it to Jesus, uh, the story of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, right before his arrest. I put up the verses uh, from the different Gospels here, and you'll see that 
Jesus' um, experience in the Garden of Gethsemane matches up perfectly with his last words that were said on the cross. In Mark, Jesus wants to get away uh, from, from this crucifixion. He doesn't want to have to go through with it. So he pleads on three separate occasions to God, please remove this cup from me. He doesn't want to have to do it. In Matthew, we actually reduce that just a little bit. By the time we get to Matthew, Jesus is only pleading two times. Um, Like Mark, uh, Mark and Matthew both have him ending that statement with, but in the end, you know, it's, it's not what I want, it's what you want. Notice, though, that statement says that Jesus wants to not have to die, to not have to be crucified. He's just willing to do what God wants instead. By the time we get to Luke, he's much more cool about it. In Luke, Jesus only asks once to get away from it. And instead of saying, not what I want, instead he says, if you are willing. So there's not a, a firm, uh, there's not a strong affirmation that Jesus doesn't want to go through with it. There's a, a weak protest and then saying, but I submit myself to your will. Now, some people will say, well, he's not that calm at all because it's Luke where Jesus actually sweats blood. That's actually not in the earliest manuscripts. That's a much later edition. And it's quite plausible that somebody was reading Luke's account and realized how unstressed out Jesus seems to be and actually put in the sweating blood just for that purpose. If you follow the original manuscripts, you take that out, Jesus is as cool as Larry the Cucumber. He's not sweating this at all. VeggieTales reference. (laughs) What about the Gospel of John? The Gospel of John doesn't have a Gethsemane uh, garden scene, uh, but it does have a discourse about Jesus' own death. Jesus gives a discourse about his death in chapter 12. And here it's funny. We find the same language in uh, in Mark, Matthew, and Luke, but Jesus is proposing this as a hypothetical. Remember, in John, Jesus is God himself. Uh, There's no difference. They are identical. If there is any difference, then they are equal, would be the proper understanding of it. So he takes this and he puts it forward as a hypothetical. He says, and what should I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it's for this reason that I have come to this hour. So he proposes it as a hypothetical and then just dismisses it. That would be ridiculous. This is the entire purpose why I'm here. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus and God are of two different minds. Their wills are different. That can't fly in John because Jesus and the Father are one. There can't be a division in his will. Well, match all these up with Jesus' last statements. In Mark, the suffering servant, uh, the misunderstood Messiah, in Mark where he pleads three times with God to take away uh, this, this punishment that he's facing, The only thing Jesus says on the cross in Mark is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that's it. Mark's Jesus has been abandoned in his last moment. He's facing that torment uh, just by himself. What about Matthew? I don't have a verse for Matthew, so (laughs) we'll skip on to Luke. Well, Luke's cool as a cucumber, right? Luke's Jesus is is ready to go through with this. A little bit of protest, but not that big of a deal. Well, Luke's, Luke's passages are this. In Luke, he says, Father, forgive them. They know, what, know not what they're doing. That's pretty nice. You're getting nailed to a cross, and you're still sympathetic for your uh, executioners. Pretty good. 
And he says, he reassures the prisoner next to him, today you will be with me in paradise. Why is he going to sweat it? Because he has to go through a bad afternoon for your sins. That, act, that evening, he's going to be in paradise. No problem. I think I could endure a lot of pain if I knew I was going to be in paradise in just a few hours. In John, John where Jesus is God, in John we see these very proud statements here. No, no resistance, no God, why have you forsaken me? In John you hear him say, it is finished, and Father, into, my, into your hands I commend my spirit. If you put these all together, you're removing what's important about each of those statements. You're not truly understanding what these Gospels are saying by trying to integrate them all together into one harmonized account. So I'm going to end with a statement by Bart Ehrman, a biblical scholar who actually began as an evangelical Christian at at Wheaton University, uh, or Wheaton College, rather. Bart Ehrman says, The differences in the Gospel accounts are significant and should not be downplayed as if Mark and Luke were portraying Jesus in precisely the same way. When modern readers act as if they were, they take neither account seriously, but rather create their very own account. And I would second that notion. Um, The harmonizers uh, are really following their own idea of Jesus. They're not following any particular Jesus. Uh, they're, They're following a patchwork Messiah, taken from several different accounts, which are best understood when they're kept distinct. So... My advice is that when anybody, a conservative or liberal Christian, tries to tell you what Jesus said and who Jesus was, that your response, the appropriate response, is which Jesus? Is it the Jesus of Mark, the the suffering Jesus, the misunderstood, the Messiah of Matthew, the prophet of Luke, or the God-man of John? Real quick, uh, here are some of the things I used as sources. I tried as often as possible just to make my arguments from the text. I, I, uh, I, I find that conservative Christians reject anything from uh, biblical scholarship just on the grounds that there was some liberal, radical scholar that came up with it. Uh, that's why I intentionally tried to design uh, uh, this lecture to say, hey, look, we can see this ourselves just by examining the text. All, nothing I've showed you tonight requires you to trust somebody with a PhD. It's all laid out there before you. Uh, but some of the sources I used um, that, that highlighted these relationships are, of course, the wonderful Oxford Bible Commentary. If you're interested in studying the Bible, it's, uh, it's definitely an asset. I would recommend it to anyone. Also, an introduction to biblical criticism called To Each Its Own Meaning, which has excellent essays on various different methods of biblical criticism. Of course, Bart Ehrman, A New Testament, uh, historical introduction to the early Christian writings, and a little bit of information there from John Dominic Crossan, Jesus, A Revolutionary Biography. And if you want to learn more about this, i got to get a plug-in for my own show. <laughs> Go to www.doubtcast.org where we have the archives of the, of the Reasonable Doubts podcast. Episodes 26 and 27 talk about cross-examining the four witnesses. I share just about everything that I shared with you tonight in there, uh, but we also bring up apologists' critique to the four-source theory and mark and priority, and we answer those critiques as well. So if you're interested in learning more, check those out, and thank you very much for your attention tonight.
We'll take questions, but a, a special thank you to Jeremy because Jeff asked him to do this less than two weeks ago. It wasn't hard, actually. I teach Bible as lit, so I had to condense nine hours of material into <laughs> 50 minutes of material and, and still try to make it make sense. So. Jeremy, I had a discussion many years ago with a rabbi friend of mine concerning my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Mm-hmm. His theory is Jesus was not actually, did not think that God had forsaken him. He was referring to the 22nd Psalm. Right. You read that, and it describes his ordeal perfectly. Then, of course, the 23rd Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, I, I shall not want, mm-hmm. death comes. So, basically, that was his theory, and it sounds reasonable to me. I don't think those are, I don't think those are exclusive, though. I think it, it can be the same thing. It's part, part of Jesus. Um, it, it is most certainly a reference to prophecy. There's no doubt about it. He even says it in the text. Uh, that he's calling out, but it's it's understood here that there's uh, somehow God is is absent. God is, um, you know, Christian theology today. Uh, many would say that this is the moment in which Jesus is bearing the sins of the world, and so God's presence can't be there. There might be a little something to that. Uh, there was an idea, especially in the intertestamental period, of vicarious suffering. You have in one of the Maccabees, I can't remember which. Um, but you have some innocent martyrs for the Jewish cause being killed. And it says it's actually through them that the sins of the nation were atoned. Uh, so there's this notion that innocent blood somehow covers uh, the, the sins of others. I think Jesus is actually working off of that tradition. Uh, but the, the key point of the, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is that he is, he's a suffering servant. He's not a Messiah that's a military leader. He's not coming in glory. He has to, he has to suffer first. He has to suffer indignities. Um, many Christians maintain that this is an entirely unique and new development in Jewish messianism. There were tons of sons of God back in those days. There's even a couple from Galilee that we could point to. But none of them were suffering servants. Israel Knowles wrote in a very compelling book, I think, uh, called the the Dead what is it the Messiah before Jesus, the Suffering Servant of the Dead Sea Scroll. And since he wrote that book, there have been tablets uncovered that actually provide additional information to back up his claim. But his claim was that uh, the Qumran community, uh, where the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, were uncovered, that their one of their spiritual leaders who also was seen as a Messiah figure, that he was seen as a suffering Messiah as well. And it's actually interesting, some of the parallels, because he was, he was killed um, right about it. He was killed by Herod, right as he was planning to, to help start a rebellion. Uh, he was killed. His body was thrown out in the street, and people, uh, the authorities forbid his followers from burying him uh, to, to make it more shameful. Uh, and three days later, his body disappeared. So you can see some interesting parallels. And many people have pointed out John the Baptist, uh, this kind of wild-haired guy, you know, uh, going throughout the wilderness, eating locusts and wild honey. He's the perfect prototype for an Essene. He's the perfect type of guy that would have been in the Qumran community. So there's there's a possible link, actually, between that community and Jesus. Now, all that's very speculative, but it's interesting. Yes. Jeremy, there's uh, quite 
an effort to introduce the Bible into our schools as a course. Somehow I don't think your course would be particularly uh, welcome. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's thoughts of having it as a source for literature, literary references, and uh, other things. What's, what's going on now? What's going on now? Um, well, there are a couple of mainstream Bible as literature curriculum uh, that are approved for secondary use throughout the states. Uh, unfortunately, one of these curriculums is very much written from an evangelical, conservative evangelical perspective. I can't remember the name of the curriculum. It escapes my mind at this moment. But listen to Reasonable Doubts, episode Liars for Jesus, and we talk about that at length. Um, but the, the curriculum was adopted by Texas, uh, not surprisingly. And... It has, you know, it has all sorts of baggage and problems that are associated with it, but the Texas Freedom Network has done a great job of doing some studies uh, of the book and making some very easy-to-read bullet-pointed brochures available so p voters can be aware of exactly what is in this textbook, why it is wrong. They've been uh, bringing attention to this. Now, there are other, uh, there's another Bible curriculum that is fine. It's sound. I mean, it's not going to get into redaction criticism, but I, you know, I, I don't know if high schoolers are ready for redaction criticism. Maybe, maybe they are, um, but it's it's a good, sound approach. It does treat the Bible as literature in the sense that it, it treats it as as a narrative and discusses it the way any other uh, literary work would be. They have little tiny side windows on Jewish and Christian perspectives on these, um, but it, but it's a pretty good curriculum. My, I think that's wonderful. I think everybody should learn the Bible. I think we'd have a whole lot less Christians, actually, conservative <laughs> Christians, if they actually read, read their Bibles. So I think it's great. I would be just mostly concerned about the, who ends up teaching it. That's, that would be the major concern. Could it be taught objectively? Sharon. Hi. Uh, at the beginning of the talk, you didn't make a big distinction between Christ and, and Messiah. Uh, is there a distinction? I kind of have always, coming out of my Quaker college where I took the Bible class, uh, thought of Christ as being a term more with John and Messiah with the, the first three Gospels. Well, um, it, they're, they're pretty much the same thing. The, the Messiah means the, the anointed one. Um, uh, Christ comes from Christos, uh, a, a Greek word for a um, um, for an anointed king. So it's it's virtually the same one. It's it's basically one's one's going to be emphasized in a Roman context. The other one's going to be emphasized in in a Jewish context. I, I uh, maybe something about how the Messiah myth began in the first place would be interesting. Um, Christians always go back in the Old Testament. And they read the Psalms and try to find confirmations of prophecies of Jesus in the Psalms. Those Psalms are almost always best read uh, and make most clearest sense if they're referring to King David. There was almost a cult in Judea around King David. It was uh, in, in many in Egypt and in, in many nation, ancient uh, Near Eastern nations. 
um, kings were thought to be semi-divine. Either they were godlike beings or they had been authorized by God to rule uh, as, as God's representative on earth. And the whole idea of a son of God, David being a son of God, is he's a son of God by adoption. He's been designated um, to fulfill that role. Now, there's a, a covenant that, that's made with David in the Hebrew Bible that says um, you, will owe, you and your offspring will always be on this throne. Well, what do you do with that uncomfortable historical fact that the kingdom ended up being overthrown and the Jews sent into exile and they never had control of their country again? Well, if you take that covenant with David seriously, and it was supposed to be an everlasting covenant that could never be broken. If you take that covenant seriously, well, then the implication is there will be a nation of Israel one day again, and it will have some a descendant of David as its king. Well, there you get the Messiah myth. And these types of messiahs were popping up all over the countryside around this time, so much so that a Roman historian um, trying to figure out the madness of why we had all these, these uh, sons of God um, read prophecies in Daniel and said, oh, this is why. <laughs> in their ancient texts, it said, a ruler is going to spring from this part of the world. So it was a pretty common thing. Jesus is not that unique. You mentioned, I think, uh, when you were talking about Mark, and I thought you said in there that Peter turned to Jesus and said, you are the Christ, which is in effect Messiah. Mm-hmm. And yet I also heard you say that they didn't seem to understand uh, who he was. Did you mean that they didn't understand that he was God? They thought he was a Messiah, but not yeah. God? Is that your point? Well, Peter, Peter identifies him as the Christ. And that's when Jesus says, well, don't tell anybody. But when they go on, um, Peter exposes his ignorance as to what that means. He thinks that that uh, that the Messiah is going to be, you know, the ruler of this kingdom, and they bicker and argue about who's going to be on Jesus' right hand. Um, and so when Jesus actually reveals, no, look, I have to suffer, I have to die, this is required of me, that's when Peter says, no, far be it, uh, this should not happen. And this is then Jesus' famous statement, get behind me, Satan. So even though Peter seems to be astute enough to put together that he's the Messiah, he doesn't understand anything about what that Messiah is and what that really means. And when Jesus actually tries to explain it to him, it still doesn't sink into Peter's head. He tells them over and over again, look, I have to go up and die. They say, no, this couldn't possibly happen. And even when he does die they scatter completely paranoid because they don't they don't know what's happening. Okay, so they don't understand that he had to die or they don't understand that he was God himself? Well, it's hard to say that in Matthew and Mark because I don't think that's Matthew and Mark's understanding is that Jesus is God himself. I think what they don't understand is that he has to die and has to suffer. They probably think, reading into it a bit, they probably think he's going to be a military-style ruler. He's, just, he's going to be a king here on earth that will liberate um, the Jews from their, their Roman oppressors. Yeah, that kind of brings up another question I had, which is how can you be a Christian and not try to harmonize the Gospels? I mean, it, to me, it seems by definition, if you didn't harmonize them, you couldn't be a Christian, right? I mean... Well, I mean... The, 
Well, there are Christians out there who are aware of all this biblical scholarship. I think what they tend to do is they try to emphasize the, uh, the parts of Jesus they like the most. Um, the, the fundamentalists have fooled themselves into thinking that it's all, it's all even. It's all saying the same thing. And so they have an apocalyptic character to, to their message. But I uh, did an interview with Brian McLaren uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, author of A New Kind of Christianity. He's really big. He's like Rob Bell, uh, a leader of this emergent church movement. And he loves the, the Luke and John Jesus, the Jesus where the kingdom is not this apocalyptic land. The, the kingdom is Jesus' presence here on earth. So a lot of times they just choose which interpretation they like. It fits their style of theology the best. And then they try to read that into the rest of the Gospels. Um, I'm sure some have more of awareness of what they're doing when they're doing that than others, but I I don't understand the gymnastics that has to go on to make that happen either. Um, this discussion here seems to focus on the different stories of this person, supposedly Jesus, that he in fact exists. Now, uh, there are scholars, that, and biblical scholars, that make the assertion that there is no historical evidence of the existence of Jesus. Yeah, and outside I, of the New I, Testament. I don't know whether you uh, ever come across any of these assertions. Uh, one author in particular that comes to mind is uh, Frank Zindler. Mm-hmm. And there's been other articles asserting that uh, historical figures, typically there are a lot more uh, evidence that you can count on, say, that this person really exists. Now, are you saying that perhaps because of these conflicting stories, therefore maybe this person, Jesus, is fictitious? Or do you personally believe that there in fact is this Jesus, but he's not necessarily the God as we perceive him to be, that he is all-powerful, that he is son of God? And yeah, I, I can answer that. Um, First of all, I think the position that there was no Jesus, if it's strongly asserted, I think that's on the fringe. I think atheists don't always want to think that, and I don't know why we need to go that extra mile and deny that he ever existed. Uh, There's no sound reason to conclude that he resurrected or, or that he's God. So I think that's a little overkill. I think the more defensible position is one that you might see Robert Price take, which is that if there... If we're asking which Jesus in the sense like um, which of these best represents the historical Jesus, uh, Price would conclude that we don't have enough evidence to distinguish uh, what a historical Jesus is from these gospel accounts. And so it's not so much that Jesus didn't exist. It's just there's no way to tell what's myth and and what's the man. Um, I personally feel that it's entirely plausible that Jesus existed. We have... Honey, the circle drawer, who was called the son of God, who was in Galilee a generation before Jesus. Uh, We have people afterwards. We have the Messiah of the Qumran community. So there's plenty of precedent for people thinking they're the sons of God. Uh, And also, if if Jesus was created out out of thin air for some purpose, there seems to be an awful lot of of juggling the facts in the Gospels. For example, the the birth narratives. 
they have to go through a lot of effort to get Jesus. Uh, apparently, Jesus was from Nazareth, and people are going to know this, but they need to get him into Jerusalem somehow. Now, if he was never existed, why would they write it that way? There's also a lot of prophecies that are pulled from the Old Testament to support Jesus, uh, to say Jesus is a fulfillment of this. And Jesus' life is such a loose fit to these earlier prophecies that you think, again, if they made them up out of whole cloth, they could have done a much better job of it. Um, so, And there's an awful lot of trying to explain embarrassing things about Jesus. Why was it that he was you know, eating, preparing food, and eating on the Sabbath? Why was he doing all these things that might have been considered unclean? And Matthew has to go to great length to try to show, no, Jesus didn't really break the spirit of the law, maybe just the letter of the law, but not the spirit of the law. I just don't understand why they would go through that kind of effort, why it would be that convoluted if, uh, if a real Jesus didn't exist. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, I, I agree. I, I get very frustrated with talk of the historical Jesus because I just feel like, well, we don't know him, and we probably never will. The Gospels are the best we have to go by. I want to thank you for your presentation. Uh, I remember quite well, 38 years ago, my seminary New Testament course. Uh, we did Qumran uh, as, a, as a looking glass for the Gospels. Uh, you covered the same ground. You covered it much more succinctly. Um, you covered it much more rationally. Thank you. Uh, of course, you don't have the burden of passionately believing in it as uh, <laughs> my New Testament prof had. Um, that cuts out a lot of time. <laughs> yeah, not having to stop and pray over the texts uh, certainly makes it shorter. Um, I have to be—I uh, have to qualify a little bit more in my class. I can't just start like I did with this presentation. And right. all of these things are wrong. <laughs> yeah, I have to be more like, well, they could be challenged from a certain point of view. Now, you, you mentioned that there are Lucan Christians, in a sense, uh, especially among theologians, people who like that picture of Christ. Mm -hmm. um, and there are certainly Markan Christians who like things simple and, and, and drawn in stark terms. And there are Johanian Christians. And I think there are harmonizing Christians, and I think they have just as much right to follow that particular Jesus as any of the others. And I think all of them have just as much right to follow and believe in uh, Jesus of the Course in Miracles, which has little to do with, with any of the Gospels. Uh, and, and they can follow the Rastafarian Jesus. Right. I want to know which one is real, if there's any truth to well, it. Well, what, so. what I want to know is who, behind, who besides the Protestant class of professionally anal-retentive anal theologians believes in the Jesus of the parallel gospel accounts. Um, it seems to me that's the one position that gets laid out that's a delight to rational-minded agnostics and uh, you know, people who are interested in Christianity, but it's the one area in which, uh, which, which claims few followers. I mean, who would, who would believe in that kind of Jesus or want to follow him? It, uh, Exactly. It, it, it and does. I think when you look at the evidence, I think that's a rational conclusion to follow. This is not a, this so is what not you've, a, what you've not got a Jesus is a, that's is worth a straw man for Christian belief. Uh, the overwhelming majority of Christians don't believe in the Jesus you're trying to lay out. I think the course, the Bible as literature, is a 
great idea for cultural literacy and religious literacy and would probably make fewer Christians, as you say. But I don't know anybody who believes in and follows Jesus as a literary hero. It's just not a religious stance that anyone would bother to take. Yeah, not too many. I mean, you have people like Corliss Lamont, uh, the humanist atheist uh, who believed that Jesus was one of the greatest moral teachings of our teachers of any age. I think there are some good stuff in uh, the Sermon on the Mount and and other places. Uh, But I think, you know, uh, I do think in the end, Jesus is in the same camp as Confucius, in the same camp as Buddha, and uh, actually I'd say probably not even of the same caliber of either of those thinkers. I think when you truly, truly look at his uh, tradition for what it is, and you strip away the stuff that does no good to us, like the apocalypticism and the Jewish messianism, and you just look down to his moral teachings, there's not a whole lot there. It's more like, you know, follow your heart and not just the deed. Don't do things for other people's approval. Do them for their right. You know, the golden rule. Those are all good notions, but uh, other people have said them, and other people have said them better. Yeah, that's that's my opinion. I, I think secularists are... If they sincerely believe it, then fine. But if they're saying that Jesus is this great moral teaching just to, you know, kill kill the Christian with kindness, uh, I, I don't see any point to that. I just fr- frankly say, you know, who he is and and what his tradition really means. Christians' thoughts about Jesus are much more significant and profound <laughs> and morally inspiring than the actual accounts of him. So maybe that's worth paying attention to. Yeah, Jeremy, I was a uh, just an average student, and I look at I look at uh, all the great thinkers of the world, and two thousand years later, and we still don't have the answer. So I don't figure in my lifetime that I'm going to solve this. And one of the things that I find uh, perplexing with this whole religious aspect not just with Christianity, but all of them, there seems to be this hide-and-seek between the, the uh, Savior and the people. There's so many different accounts, so many different religions and sects, and uh, so it just seems to me that it, it, it just makes no sense that if, if someone has come to earth to have followers that it isn't a little more clear that and that there's there's this mumbo jumbo and and accounts in the bible uh, because i don't know the other religions of god intervening in various ways we're supposedly have free will and yet the, the the bible is replete with god hardened their hearts opened their eyes closed their mind closed their heart you know all of these interventions and where if someone's trying to see the truth, God is preventing them or maybe stepping in and allowing them and helping them. So I, I just, this to me just does not make sense with this, this cat and mouse, this hide and seek game that seems to be going on between man and God. And I just wondered what your feeling might be. Well, I mean, there's an argument against theism, which is the argument from absence that says that why would, uh, why would God keep his identity concealed from us. As far as the differences and the different interpretations and the different sects, 
I think that's only hard to understand from the perspective of somebody who thinks the Bible is a unity, that it's a coherent message and has the same theme all throughout. The Bible is not a unity. It's a diversity. It has many, many different perspectives. And this explains why there's so many different sects um, because they, they it, basically whatever aspect on any issue you want to take, you might be able to find proof texts uh, to support your position. I do want to say something about the discrepancies uh, in the Bible, though. I do get annoyed by atheists or uh, skeptics or websites like the, annotate, the Skeptics Annotated Bible, which think that what we do is we fight against the fundamentalists by spotting all the different particular contradictions, and we use those as ammunition when we try to prove them wrong and go, oh, look, look, your Bible contradicts and everything. I think that's a pretty superficial way of treating the text. I think actually it's the discrepancies and the contradictions that really reveal the richness and the diversity of these traditions. I like the fact that there were apocalyptic Christians and there were other Christians who were softening that message. I like the fact that in the Hebrew Bible, um, you have accounts of you have very highly ritualized accounts of how to follow your religion. You know, go on the right days, make the right sacrifices. And then you have other perspectives that say that doesn't matter at all to God. God wants, uh, God wants you to uh, love him and take care of the poor. The problem with the fundamentalists is if you ignore the contradictions, you're not seeing the real richness of these traditions. You can't really appreciate the Bible for what it is. But the problem on the skeptic side sometimes is they do the same thing. They, they look at the contradictions as a mean to the end to you know, beat up the other guy's position instead of taking a real serious look at these texts and trying to understand it. You know, the, um, a lot of merit can be found in studying the religious texts of the, of the Greeks, of studying Homer and uh, the Iliad and the Odyssey. We quite rightly realize that there are great moral lessons that we can take from that book. And we can do that unselfconsciously because we don't have to treat it as divinely inspired. We don't have to justify all the barbaric crap in those books. I wish someday we would get to the same place with Judaism and Christianity. I wish most people could jettison the religious aspect and just treat it as an ancient text. And I think uh, when you would do that, you would find so much more you'd get so much more out of it than the fake profundity that many believers try to force into those pages. Hi, Jeremy. Yeah, thanks for speaking, and I've found from listening to you speak tonight that we have a lot in common, far more in common than we do in different We knew that already, Jeff. But uh, <laughs> anyway, when you were talking about John um, and the narratives that you've talked about are the narratives in the canon of the Holy Bible, I got to thinking about this... Uh, the, the Docetic tradition, the Gnostic tradition, mm -hmm. where God, Jesus, was here in spirit, but the flesh, Jesus, was basically an imposter. And in fact, uh, in the Gospel of Peter, uh, it, it reinforces that in the Coptic Gospel of Peter. And in the Gospel of Judas, at the crucifixion, there's the laughing Christ looking down from heaven because the man on the cross yeah. is not him. <laughs> that, that and was a... 
That really sucks. Yeah. <laughs> That's a hard one to explain away, which is probably why it's uh It's like the ancient the version Bible. of being John Malkovich. But I was wondering what you thought about that and what you thought about the Docetic tradition and reconciling that with the perception of a flesh and blood human Jesus. I don't see why everybody's uh, all up on, oh, how beautiful the Gnostic traditions are. I mean, I, I see one area of appeal, and that is the women had a larger role in those communities. They were mystical. So they weren't hierarchical, and women had more of a chance to play play a strong role. I bet I think that's about the nicest thing you can say about them. I'm actually quite glad that the proto-Orthodox Christians won out because if the Gnostics had won, the situation would be a hell of a lot different. Um, that is, it's hates it hates the body, it despises nature, uh, it glorifies the most abject mysticism, and you're the your own guide to truth and all things and. Uh, uh, quite frankly, I'm glad they never <laughs> they never made it. Uh, I, and I, I sometimes I sometimes wonder why there's such a fetish around it nowadays. Um, it's not appealing to me at all. <laughs> I, get, I don't know if that's answering your question, but that's right. how I feel about the Gnostic Gospels. Not a fan. All right, we're over on time. We'll take one more question because um, we've been having such a good discussion here. Most Christians, when you speak to them, feel the Bible is confirmation of the divinity of Christ, uh, the Word of God. Uh, that's the really one assurance they have that their faith is justified. Other than the Gospel of Luke, I'm sorry, of uh, John, I don't believe the letters of Paul, certainly the Synoptic Gospels, uh, is there any really, they, they really talk about the humanity of Christ in the Synoptic Gospels, uh, even in Paul talking in the letters. Um, do you feel that there is more assertion of Christ's divinity or Jesus' divinity. Outside of John? Outside of John. Um, well, I'm trying to remember the the epistle to the Hebrews, I think, but I'm I'm that's one I'm least familiar with. Um, you know, I don't I don't know really how Paul thinks about all this. Paul um, portrays Jesus as the new Adam. He's kind of like a new prototype for humanity. But Paul has a really sophisticated outlook on just what that means, Jesus as the first fruits of the resurrection um, and the new man and everything. And, and I guess it's it's unclear to me from if Paul's epistles view Jesus as semi-divine um, just to begin with or if that is, that's payment for him doing the job. There are some verses in Paul that seem to indicate that, like God honored him by putting him on his right hand because he completed his task. So I think maybe the most consistent reading of Paul is that Jesus is an adopted son of God. He receives glory because of the powerful role that he played. Maybe not that he's quite God himself, but I think if I was pushed on that and provided you know, with some good evidence, I, I, I would easily dismiss that view. I'm not too holding to that too strongly. Honestly, it doesn't really matter to me if, if the whole thing thought Jesus was God. Um, I, I wouldn't find a 2,000-year-old text all that compelling in that regard. So again, I, I sometimes wonder why skeptics feel the need to go as far as they possibly can and impeach Christian theology everywhere they can in the Bible. I mean, it's why not just admit that some of it's sound theology, but it just, you know, is not logically compelling to anyone who doesn't already accept those premises. But universally, Christians say the entire Bible 
confirms Jesus' divinity. And you're now struggling with other than John. Yeah, but it's because they read it as a coherent piece. If you read it as a coherent piece and you read John uh, and everything else, then it's it's quite natural to see Jesus saying, I'm the son of God or the son of man as as being a, a, a reference to his own divinity. That's, that's easy to see. Um, it, you have to train yourself. Um, very few of us ever get the privilege of coming to the Bible with no received assumptions from our culture. You, if you really want to understand the Bible as it is, you, you have to deliberately train yourself to look at it without those assumptions. And when you do, the result is amazing. When, when you do, things that never made sense before suddenly start coming to the surface. Uh, most Christians simply don't study their Bible that way. They begin with the assumption that it's coherent. Thank you. catch up on past Reasonable Doubts episodes or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission. Also, I'd like to announce that we now have a donut 